finally, the one you don't want to hear is groundhog. If you hear groundhog, it means that there is incoming fire onto the post or it is happening, so you'll hear it, okay? If you hear groundhog, 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 helmet on, body armor on to this location and Captain Collins again will bring you around uh, to the bunker. So I'm now going to show you the location of the bunker. At the moment it's uh, just approaching 8.30 and it's hitting close to 30 degrees. Well, it looks as if we're in for a, a hot one. In Lebanon, the situation can really change. If you measure it as a traffic light, it can really go from, from, uh, from green to, uh, to red. They say the skies of Lebanon are burning Those mighty cedars bleeding in the heat Lebanese people seem to have the same connection with the Irish. They're looking forward to the Irish going back. So, well, There was the tendency for the Irish to be very sympathetic towards the plight of the Lebanese. You're in a town, Tibnine, where the people know the Irish and like the Irish. I asked to have the Irish contingent in Tibnine because we know them before. From 78 to 2001, there was in Tibnine and it was a great experience. We're uh, about two kilometres away from the village of Yaroun. It's just over here to our right hand side. We're on our way to 650. As you can tell, we're on a fairly rough track. It's an off track. There is main roads, but there's no fun in that. <laughs> the Israeli border is on our left there, the technical fence it's called. There's a post there. That's a post there on the hill. Whiskey 425 Bravo. They've shattered the whole thing all up here, and then there's another post at the top, 430 it's called, and they can see down, so at all If you go off the verge, there's landmines, you'll see them signposted, normally. Fence and bullwire is your best indication just to stay out of things. It's crazy, you see the farmers still having to do their jobs, like going in working in, these, in and around the yeah, minefields. Like it's by the monument back here, there was a shepherd in, and his goats all over the place, taking a huge risk. It's late July 2011 and I'm on the blue line with the Irish contingent of Unifil at the very southern tip of Lebanon at its agreed boundary with Israel. As sensitive areas go, this is particularly so. The border area between these two countries was once a so-called security zone. A strip of land extending into Lebanese territory and occupied by the South Lebanese Army, or SLA, essentially an Israeli proxy force. This state of affairs lasted over 15 years until the regular Israeli Defence Forces withdrew its outposts in 2000 and the SLA militia immediately collapsed. The following year, battalion-sized Irish deployment to South Lebanon, in place since 1978, ceased. Now, 10 years after we left, the soldiers of the 104th Battalion return an Irish presence to South Lebanon. And over 33,000 individual tours of duty later, the Irish-Lebanese connection is reignited. As we return, I'm following two of those tours. One thing uh, meeting you for the first time that people can't help but notice is the moustache. And the moustache, when did that appear on the scene as a cosmetic, as, a, as an aid to your face? Uh, yeah. Meet Nolo Callahan, Sergeant Major. This will be his fourth trip to Lebanon alone. Well, funny enough, I, I, I nearly always had a moustache from, from when I could grow one, believe it or not. Uh, and the odd time that I'd shave it off, which is usually overseas, uh, my wife would always send me back a, a warning to have it grown back by the time I come home. Uh, I suppose it expanded out a bit from the time I became a senior NCO. Uh, I suppose it's part of the image, but uh, it's, part, it's, it's uh, important to uh, the lads in particular are able to identify who that Sergeant Major is. Meet Tom Mulderick, Lieutenant. For now, this will be his first overseas mission. The cadets, um, well, <laughs> first thing I would say about it was very tough. I suppose you're seeing everyone at their worst and at their best moments and all the kind of uh, superficialness of, 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 a situa of a person like is all stripped down and you see them for what they are and you all get to know each other uh, over the course of like it was 21 months, you know, and you're living in each other's pockets and you're relying on each other to get through the whole thing. My name is Lieutenant Lee McDonnell. 
I'm from Dundalk in County Loud and I'm based in 28th Infantry Battalion in Donegal. Trevor McNairn, I'm based in Fort Cavalry Squadron uh, at Lone and I'm originally from uh, Donegal. I'm a Private Rooney based in Athlone from South Galway, out here as an MT fitter. What's that to the layman? It is a motor mechanic, heavy vehicle. Commandant Ed McDonough, I'm the Camp Commandant. I have overall responsibility for the running of UN Post 6-5 Camp Shamrock. We're at the end of April, first week of MRE, your mission readiness exercise. This first week really contains all the, the skills and the aspects of training that the platoon are going to have to go through as, as the guards say, the likes of heli training, map reading, firing of different weapons, counter IED training, all those different stands today that we've been exercised in and this is just one of them, heli training. Alright lads, just if you can, just one second there, if you just break in. That weapon, that rifle they're carrying is like an extension of their arm and you, you will see once you start uh, it'll slip from their from their back or their shoulder into their hands very smoothly and they're ready to go and that's what it's about well I suppose uh, if you would take it from the lads perspective I would be like the father no one wanted you know but uh, essentially I'm the senior NCO of the battalion I'm the link, direct link between the uh, officers and the, and the NCOs and men but I suppose more importantly I would be a uh, kind of a right hand for the commanding officer and the deputy commander uh, I would be an, ad an advisor to him and uh, I would kind of also be a, a mentor uh, to not alone the, the young NCOs but also to the, to the uh, young officers. Within my own cadet class there may be about four or five, a lot of them would have got trips already, they would have been overseas already so I'm one of the, the few that hasn't gone as of yet um, so as I said the two other trips Kosovo and Chad were meant to go ahead and I was due to go on both of them so I like to be active, I keep uh, I keep going with the men in, in Chad. I would have done uh, armor patrols or and heli up with them. It was the same in Kosovo. Uh, I did mobile and static checkpoints with them, not as a sergeant major, but as at the lower level as a as a private. So that, not long was I upskilling, but the lads could see me perform on the ground and and then that they assuming that they can look up to. And I suppose in some respects the sergeant major's role is a figurehead as well, you know. So and very important with that. When you sit in the aircraft. For aircraft seats facing forward, you put on the shoulder straps. For aircraft seats facing the sides of the aircraft, you only need the lap straps, okay? So you should have done that. On the now. day that's in it today, it is incredibly warm. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be as hot mm. as it's going to be when you guys do get out there, but I mean, it must be 18, 19, 20 degrees, and you're in a lot of heavy gear, so add an extra 20 degrees on top of this, and uh, you got to do all that in the heat. Yeah, it is a, it's a big factor, all right, and there is a lot of gear. And I suppose that highlights the importance of physical fitness. Um, really, a guy can't afford, given the, the volume of weight and the volume of gear that he's carrying, he can't afford to be you know, overweight or not be a, a, in a good degree of physical fitness. Personally, did you think you'd end up going back, ever seeing it again in, no, the, in this No, I have to say I didn't. My last trip there was in 2000. And uh, I was out there with the second trip in, in, a, in 1978. And the infrastructure and the country had developed so much and and I have to say I was very proud to be there because I seen it when it was first there and what we achieved by, by our presence on the ground. I thought when we pulled over there that we'd never see it again and I suppose in, in essence I think what's significant about it then uh, the last time we were there there were 3,000 UN troops there there are now 12,000 mm -hmm. so I think that gives you a flavour of the danger level and it's, I think that's the important one in this is that we, we always have to emphasise the mission is a danger mission. We wouldn't be there otherwise, and we have to train for that. Well, there's a blue line there, uh, which uh, it's, it's the job of the United Nations to hold, and the Irish will be part of that blue line, and we will hold their line. I suppose all their training is geared, all their basic training is geared towards serving overseas, or all the tactical training is geared towards that, and unless you put it into practice, it's like training for a football match, unless you get to, you can be on the training pitch for so long, but unless you actually go and play the match itself, you're going to become stale. It's the same with these guys. You know, they'll all have been looking forward to this for a long, long time. To getting overseas, you can only train for so long until you actually do the real thing and then put your skills into action then, you know, in a, in a real environment. Training is all very well, but what of the actual environment the Irish are moving into? Retired Irish Army Colonel Colm Doyle. The objective of the mission is to keep a lid on it. 
Colm Doyle served in the very first battalion to go to Lebanon, the 43rd in 1978, and returned to command the 82nd in 1997. The biggest change, however, probably is the fact that the unit will be operating with the Lebanese National Army, which is, which is, a, which is a new adventure for the defensive. Writer and Middle Eastern correspondent Robert Fisk has lived and worked from Beirut for over 30 years. I meet him on a hot, muggy Friday night at Paul's Cafe in central Beirut. Life is quiet in the south because the Hezbollah want it to be. The, the fact of the matter is that you have a good relationship with local people who will, many of them, not want you to be hurt. I don't mean you personally, I mean Irish bat, uh, who would be quite prepared to do their best, not only through Amal, but with Hezbollah to say, don't harm the Irish. They don't want the Irish to go home, do they? Um, remember, other units have packed up and gone the moment they thought they were going to be attacked. Now, in the aftermath of the 2006 war, the ceasefire that followed it, the fact that Hezbollah dominates the government of Lebanon at the moment, the fact that you've got armoured units in Unifil, this is not the same soft, cheerful, peacekeeping blue berets, this is more helmets. A lot of the officers would already served. I would already, example, have served. I served on Cyprus with the 11th Irish Infantry Group in 1968, which was 10 years previously. But a lot of my lieutenants that were with me, this was the first time ever serving abroad. So it was a great challenge. It was a sense of an adventure. And for them, it was a test on their leadership qualities because this was the first time they were going to be tested on whether or not they had the attributes to be commanders. When the Irish first came here and when the Irish left, they were almost two different armies. They learned a lot here. When the, when the Irish army first came, uh, they were coming under fire with the French from Palestinians. During that period, they had punch-ups with Amal, they had punch-ups with Haddad people, and they had punch-ups with the Hezbollah, and they got killed by members of all the militias, including Haddad. In two cases, of course, Smallhorn and Barrett, they were murdered. And it was a very, while it was a sort of cosy, friendly little country, it was very dangerous because you had all these little militia group of schools who were sort of fighting each other, hating each other, loving each other. In the middle of it was Ireland being a peacekeeper. I remember very well arriving and about to cross the border at Roshinikra, which was the main border crossing into Lebanon, and being absolutely amazed when we, all, we the convoy was stopped, uh, we armed ourselves, and we actually took ammunition out of ammunition boxes and put them into our weapons because we were now crossing the borders into an area of conflict. And this is the first time in my recollection as a soldier that on foreign service that I actually put bullets up the spout of our weapon expecting maybe that at some stage we may have to use it. So it, we, it was very tense at the time. As I said, it was the very first Irish to serve in Unifil. And to a lot of us, it was a brand new adventure. But you know, at the very beginning, I remember south of Tibnine, uh, Haddad militiamen working for the Israelis, chucking stones at the Irish. You, they had panhards then. And Irish soldiers chucking stones back. And I remember the Washington Post correspondent said to me, this is like Belfast, this is ridiculous, you know. Now, of course, that we're talking now about 78, 79, 80. Since then, I mean, I could tell, I'm not being patronising, the Irish became much more professional. They became much more a trained European army. Um, not because they went off to anyone else to seek advice. They learned the hard way. They learned how to negotiate. And one of the fortunate things for the Irish was that coming from uh, a fairly agrarian country and a poor country, as it was in 78, it's poor again now, but for different reasons, and from countryside that was remarkably similar to South Lebanon. I remember when uh, Private Griffiths was killed. I went to the funeral and I remember thinking that Galway looked just like Southern Lebanon. I said so in my report that night in the Times, for which I was then working. Well, the land was very barren. Uh, somebody said it was a little bit like what you find in Connemara, uh, all stones. It was very warm. We were under tentage mm -hmm. and it used to get very warm at night. I remember even though um, I was actually living in the house I actually slept on the veranda and I'll always remember having a guilty conscience because um, when I went to Lebanon that time we had three small children and I think all of them were probably still in nappies and when I think of the responsibility I left to my poor wife when I went off to soldier in South Lebanon with the United Nations but there was a house in relatively close proximity to where we were and there was a, there was a child in that house that cried every single night non-stop and I felt it was my wife sending me out volumes of this is what you're missing at home. So it used to lead me going to sleep at night with a sort of a guilty conscience. Originally Unifil, all the units 
were put in geographical areas resembling their own home countries. That's why the Fijians were put on the coast, because they were on the sea, they were an island. Norwegians were put up in Sheba village because it had snow all the time. They put the Irish on land that looked very like Donegal, Galway or Mayo. And that was deliberate, that was quite deliberate. And in fact, uh, Timo Goxel, who later became uh, Special Assistant Force Commander, he was involved in doing that. And he came round to lots of us saying, what does Ireland look like? And I said, sort of southern Lebanon, you know, in the middle of the land. I didn't influence it, but um, it was quite deliberate to put these soldiers where they would feel close to their own homelands. My name is Captain Ian Kilbride. I'm from Athlone, the Roscommon side of Athlone. Important, uh, important very, very important. My name is Corporal Samantha Heavey. I'm based in two cabin cattle brew barracks in Dublin, but I'm originally from Kildare Town. My name is Corporal Michael Murphy, and I'm stationed in the 28th Battalion in Ballyshannon, County Donegal, and I live in Lufford, County Donegal. Gunner Derek Lynch, I'm based in Mullingar, and I'm living just outside Tullamore. Gunner Jeffrey Rogers, based in Mullingar and from Mullingar. 858-996, Corporal Derek Carlin, uh, from the 1st Battalion, Galway. How many years are you coming out to the Glen at this stage? 26. 26 years. And does it's it ever... Literally, literally since 1975. Does it ever change? It does and it doesn't. It depends on the, on, on the job at the time. But uh, the terrain is... On a, on a good day, the, the Glen is a beautiful place. On a bad day, it's a bad place to be, though. really is, you know. Bad weather, bad... We were snowed in here one period there. Literally, couldn't get out the gate. We literally uh, stayed for two days many years ago. Hard going. In the Glen of Amal, County Wicklow, with less than two months to deployment, training is as real world as possible. And a little role playing is par for the course. Significance or of importance in this general vicinity. The first one is Kiltegan. Okay, it's in a southerly direction and has a mixed population. There's 35% uh, Christians and 65% Muslim in that town. There's also the town of Baltinglass. It's in a southwesterly direction. It's a Christian town, predominantly Christian. And then the last town uh, of significance in our area of operations is Stratford. That's in a westerly direction, okay, and that's a Shia town, or predominantly Shia town. Tom Mulderick. We were last chatting in the Curra barely a week ago. It seems like a long way away when, from where we're standing at the moment. Yeah, it was, uh, seems like a long week, actually, since uh, we were last talking. But um, this week now is just, the ante has kind of stepped up a bit. We're now in the actual exercise scenario, where they've created an actual scenario for us. For all intents and purposes, we're now in the country of Lebanon and we're now at our platoon post position. The soldiers' training is loud, in your face and not for the faint-hearted. Here, one man is evacuated on a stretcher under cover of gunfire to a waiting helicopter. Noel O'Callaghan. That group there. Of the, the 29 people in there, the bulk of them are all first-timers. Uh, I think of all the privates in it, there's only two of them that's not first-timers. Okay, right, so that was new for, for them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, totally new to them. And we're walking up to a chopper now, just hovering maybe about 20, 30 foot above us. That's hovering. right, and um, the, the number two on the chopper is checking the ground to see that, that it's safe. Don't forget, they also have to carry out their counter IED drills, that they're not going to land on an improvised explosive device. Uh, themselves, so this it's is all running a lot of dust. Absolute, a lot of dust. And in Lebanon, uh, as you know, it's a dust bucket. Anyway, so you're going to have that. That's a very real simulation of the thing. The lads will take. Uh, we'll start off in the front, and they'll move in at three o'clock to the chopper for, for mounting the, the casualty onto it. Now, someone will be monitoring the, the casualty on that stretcher. Uh, uh, for instance, if trying to stem the flow of blood and that kind of stuff. So. They're running back into the Moag now. They're, they're running back into the Moag. There's a young lady there, first time trip there now. Two years ago, she was probably doing her nails. Here yeah. she's running with a rifle after doing a medivac procedure for a guy that was blown up. That's it's real time training. Well, I suppose this is kind of really the culmination of all the training going to it. And to be honest, yeah, I'd be be glad when I suppose we have this exercise finished. And you know, I suppose. That will mean that you know we've the, the bulk of our training really done for it and a few small admin requirements to complete then prior to going and um but yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to it now i am but i suppose the focus is still on getting this week finished with and uh, and you finish on friday is it finish on friday okay we've been here since monday 
which was a bank holiday, so. <laughs> um, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, well, my brother got married on Sunday, so um, yeah, it was. Did uh, you Did you make the wedding? I made the wedding. I made the wedding, but uh, well, luckily they gave me a bit of an exemption. I didn't have to be back till a few hours, a few hours later, but uh, missed the after party, but. <laughs> part of it part, it's part of duty it's part, it's the, the call the of rough duty. with the smooth yeah, yeah. my own one next year now so uh don't miss that no i <laughs> know <laughs> oh, um, i think they'll allow me that at least i think I should hope. the lebanese mission at this time is significant as it gives the army back a crucial role one that's been missing since they left chad in may 2010 that of full battalion size overseas deployment Colm Doyle again. There was an outcry, I think, I remember, um, uh, there was a, uh, Joe Duffy's uh, programme had uh, people phoning in uh, saying, look, uh, we don't need an army anymore because there's no foreign service and all of that. Now, they don't know, you know, I mean, they really don't know what they're talking about. And I've always argued, and this has come up in programmes before, when people say, well, why do we need an army? Well, if you want to know why we need an army, the Minister for Defence is the man to answer that question. It's not a soldier who wears a uniform who should be justifying why we have an army. It's the government of the day. The Defence Forces is an institution of the state. The state decides whether or not we need an army. Because of the lull in overseas for the last couple of years, definitely there is a little bit of excitement about going back overseas again and, and having overseas service as part of the Defence Forces again because uh, it's an important part of our life and if we don't have it, it, it can become very mundane, you know. The reputation of Ireland abroad in United Nations peacekeeping is higher than anybody in this country probably has the slightest idea about. It is immeasurable. And that's appreciated, I think, by the Department of Foreign Affairs probably more than anybody else. So we should be proud of what our guys do. They do it very well. They've been doing it for a long, long time. Their benefit abroad is greater than the size that we have. There's no doubt about that. And good luck to them to do it very well. You are travelling to Lebanon. It's at Lone, early June. And with just a few weeks to go to Lebanon, this is the last official function of the battalion before leaving. Amid ministerial reviews, speeches, a march past and mingling, friends, family and soldiers take the opportunity for one last get-together as a unit before disbanding and reuniting in-country on mission. Who I have got in there, my husband is, is heading off. And he's leaving? He's leaving five. <laughs> five of us behind. <laughs> And is he, uh, is he an old hat at the overseas stuff? Oh yeah, this is about his 10th trip overseas now, yeah. He, and he's been in Lebanon trip. before, so. And Israel. Yeah. And Somalia. It's really like going home for him, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, can I ask who you've got, who you've got in there? Uh, my nephew, Shane Corn. And Issa is his girlfriend. <laughs> and he's heading off for the six months. And his mummy is down there and his grandparents. And uh, is this his first or is he? No, I see, he's been abroad. He was in Bosnia, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was away before, so it's the second now. And have you been to one of these? Before? No, this is my first time here. To Perfect. see anything. The weather's fabulous, but it's a bit warm for them, I'd say. They're melting. Can I ask who you've got? Uh, oh, going? so yes, Gretton. Tony Gretton. Tony Gretton. Yeah, yeah. This is 18 trip. Yeah. 12 to Lebanon. It's like going back home again, yeah. You'd be a slightly, you'd be slightly less, you'd be more the army husband as opposed to the army wife. Well, the future army husband, you know. The future, yeah. yeah the future. Please God, we'll get married this year as well, you know. Have you anything to add to that, T? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> TJ's quiet. <laughs> Major, how do you think that went? How many of those have you done now, this stage? Can uh, you put a number on them? Well, the first one I ever did was actually Eamon de Valera's funeral. As a very young, uh, I was only in a very short time, a young soldier. And so we, we did that one up to Dublin, and that took what seemed like months, but. Uh, so you become used to the ceremonial. It has been a bit of a whirlwind. Like it has been all go since we started in February. It really has, you know. And I'd say if you asked anyone else, they'd, they'd say the same. You know, there's been so many aspects of training that we've had to complete as part of the syllabus, the training for going overseas. And you know, there's, it's been non-stop really. You yeah. know, there hasn't been one quiet week. Have you got home much? No, I'm living out of my car at the moment. There's <laughs> about well, I've been at home at the weekends, but by the weekends. Say six days, the last six to eight weeks have been constantly on the go. And did, did any of your lot make it? Oh, they did, yeah. My wife and my daughter and my grandchild is up there now, and uh, 
and, and uh, you know, it's great, very proud for me to be out there, uh, to be looking in and see them there, you know, that they came down for it, you know, because, uh, you know, it is a big deal, and, and there's very few soldiers will tell you that when the band strikes up, if you don't feel the hair in the back of your neck, then you're in the wrong place, because there's something just goes through you, electric, and you take the step off it. You're going autopilot. The passing out parade is as much uniformed pomp and ceremony as it is about family. I chat to Noel's wife and daughter as just behind us he plays with his grandchild. Is he ever off duty? No. 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 Does he, does he, does he, what does he do to relax? He doesn't. Sleeps. <laughs> I think that's he just it. Takes cat naps. <laughs> Did you know he was in the army when you met him? Came down, he had he joined up and he was... Nearly all the strangers were army boys at that <laughs> time, weren't they? <laughs> yes. So, no. Um, like, as I say, he was sent down to Mullingar to do his training and... And he never left? Never left, never went back home. He's such a whirlwind when he's home. Will it be calm when he's away? Or will yeah. there be oh, a... Oh, most definitely. <laughs> That's yes. what mum's looking forward yeah. to, the calmness. <laughs> you know, and, and there'll be no... Um, Oh, uh, ring and say, well, what time will you be home at for something to eat? Or, you know, like this. We just. Not saying we won't miss him, but no, it's just. Of course. It's <laughs> just, it's, he's always in and out the door, and somebody's ringing him, or his 2,000 friends on Facebook are on to him. Or mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, PR works with PR Facebook. on Facebook and that. Mm -hmm. Do you reckon that the overseas experience has changed as the years have gone on? Because initially, Back in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, it was, you know, the main point of contact apart from coming home was letter writing. Yes. So how do you find that has, do you find that has I evolved a bit? Yeah, uh, I remember when he went, we used to be always, you'd be watching out for the postman then, to see if there was, you know, the airmail envelopes. And if you got one of them, might, and it might go a couple of days, maybe a week, maybe nine days, nine, ten days before you might get a letter. But now, like with Sky, and what have you. Dad doesn't like using that. Remember the last trip he told us yeah. he couldn't he couldn't get it working and he could. He just doesn't like to look in and see everyone's face in the other end. So whenever else he uses <laughs> Skype, I'm sure Dad he, won't I'm, I'm sure he's open I'm sure he's gonna be open for a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like his enthusiasm open arms. He knows, like how, he, yeah, he knows yeah. how to use he knows it. He just to use it. He just doesn't like to see us at home and know that he's home. not with us. So he probably goes off with a picture in his mind and that's it then, you know. You know so he's going with what's he going with that that machine that holds a thousand films and five hundred photographs oh, yeah, so he has yeah. that load it up very films and photographs so I'd say that'll probably his, be his picture for the next five months a week later I meet Tom on the few days downtime the troops get before they deploy today is the 17th of June and my flight goes on the 27th of June so I'm at home here now after um, putting in my baggage only on Monday today's Friday um, went into the containers on Monday having a bit of time off now just I suppose at home and to meet a few friends and tie up any loose ends before going. Um, yeah. That's really what I've been at the past few days at home in Bohola here. So it's nice and relaxing for um, after all the pre-deployment training. It's great to get the break <coughs> from it, you know. So born and bred in Bohola. <laughs> yeah. And here we are in Bohola. Green fields. Yeah. It's, uh... Just just for the uninitiated, the road to Westport and you'll pass Bohola. That's it, a road to Castlebar, yeah. It's about 10 miles from Castlebar um, and 5 miles from Swinford and Kelchmaz only up the road, which is 4 miles away. And, and uh, what was it like growing up here? Ah, uh, um, <laughs> I suppose as you can see, it's a quite enough area, but um, every Saturday growing up would be a day on the farm, cleaning sheds and moving cattle and uh, dosing them and... Oh, it, it was a full day's work every Saturday, but as we grew older, kind of, I suppose when we moved away from home, it was just really, that would just be himself and Kevin really doing it, you know, so yeah. we were surplus to requirements, <laughs> thankfully. I was in the FCA for a, a year or two, um, ah, which was, you know, it was enjoyable, like, you know, and it kind of gave me a taste of what was, what the army life was like. I suppose it all kind of came from um, my father mentioned it to me when I was about 14 and um, just one day at the kitchen table there he's mentioned it to me about what I ever think about joining the cadets and I hadn't a clue what the cadets was and um, but he, he just said that like I was into sport and fitness and that I knew that and he said it was just something that he thought maybe I might be suited to um, and he said that he had thought of joining it himself when he was younger but 
never really had the opportunity really to go and look more into it you know at the time um he said just you might look into it so i looked into it and just anything on the army that i was ever reading i'd cut it out and keep it up in the room upstairs and started kind of sending away for information and got more interested where does your girlfriend live then Claire's from uh, Woodfield, which is, uh, if you think Bohol is small, uh, <laughs> we're going to go smaller again. It's uh, just outside Kelchamaa on the Kelly Road. Is it a Road. suburb of Bohola? Uh, <laughs> something like that, yeah. It's, um, yeah, just on the way to Kilkelly, like, so we'll go out there in a while, actually. You'll see it's sparsely populated. I'm a very different person today than uh, the person I was when I went into it. Like one example, like the thought of standing up in front of a room of people addressing them before I joined the army was something I wouldn't have contemplated. Whereas now, you know, it wouldn't faze me in the slightest, you know. Well, more or less, you know. But uh, definitely, the the you've become out of a very rounded individual coming out of it, and you learn a lot of new skills, and you you push yourself to limits that. Um, you probably didn't know that you you had or you could reach. You know. If you mind me asking, was there a moment? Uh, there was, well, I suppose it was uh, up in uh, at a local football match up the road that uh, my local club was playing Thomas's local club. So uh, we were both at it, but I didn't uh, get to speak to Thomas at it. I just saw the back room going. So, yeah, then after that, I got in touch again. <laughs> Claire, Claire did all the chasing. She texted me and... <laughs> Well, so um, <laughs> well, would you care to respond to that, Claire? Yeah, uh, <laughs> so he likes to think. <laughs> the other woman in Tom's life is his mother, Christina. She now has to contend with two army sons, as Tom's younger brother followed him into the cadets. When James got in, like you know, you would get it from a lot of people, like oh, you must have great pull or something, like you know, cadets like so hard to go. Sure, it wasn't Paul, like. The thing about Thomas, Thomas now would be, have been like, they nearly all have nearly the same kind of personality, very quiet and, you know, you know you'd know, you never think that when Thomas was young that he'd ever go off and join the army, like, I would never have thought that, you know. You know I'd be worried about him going and all that, you know, but um, not, not overdue because he's well trained and... And there might come a time in the future when uh, Tom and his brother will be overseas together. That's all the better. <laughs> At least you'd have company. And he's not the first one to go overseas and won't be the last. And I'm not the first one to be just waiting here. <laughs> um, so I kind of, it's just accept it really because there's nothing else. Sure, what can you do? You have to go over and just kind of get on with things and keep busy and look forward to when you come home and keep in touch while you're over there. And because it's, I suppose, maybe it's easier now than it was years ago because of Skype and all that kind of thing. I mean, would you miss him when he's gone? Oh, of course, yeah. Every weekend and the washing and the making of the dinners and the stew. He loves the stew, Tom stuff. <laughs> is, is Thomas spoiled? No, no, no. None of them are spoiled. None of them. But if he, if he starts sending back his washing when he's overseas... I'd say, no, oh, I'd do it for him. Okay. <laughs> I would genuinely do it. No, none of them are spoiled, or none of them would ever take advantage. If you asked any of them, no, I'm not just saying, I have four sons, they would genuinely do anything for you. And I'm just saying it because they're my own, but, you know, they're very well taught in the community. And it is hard to believe, actually, I'll be gone in ten days, and probably hasn't really hit home yet fully, but, um, although I suppose it should do now, ten days to go, but... Uh, The next day, I call into Mullingar and visit Noel at home and take a look at his work base in Mullingar Barracks. We're in your office now, Noel, and we'll explain maybe where we're about. Maybe give us a tour. What is you now? This, that, yeah. that's black, a very black and white. Yeah. All black and white. All black and white. Without the moustache. Yeah, no moustache, black hair, very much youthful. But the uh, main thing about that photograph is, I think... I'm, there's none of them left. I'm the last one. Then they're out of the army or? Every one of them are gone, yeah. I hail from Ironmore Road in Ballyfermot, near Palmerstown. And uh, it, it was great growing up there. Now, I must say, I loved it there. Where where my back garden ended, for as far as you could, tr- could see or travel, uh, way up to the Wicklow Mountains, were wheat fields. 
And it was marvellous because during the summer, you'd go picking berries or, or uh, you know, tadpoles and be playing football out there. But uh, the sad thing about it, of course, is time took over. And now that's where we'd feel prison. That's where it got its name from. Well, I'm 53 now. I can serve till I'm 60. Now, my wife doesn't believe me, neither does anyone else. I'd love to retire at 65, believe it, even though I love the army. But uh, I, I want to go while, while I'm still relevant to the lads and while I'm still able to match what they do. So I, I can perform as a soldier, apart from being my rank. Uh, so I, I want to maintain that, uh, you know, I want to go on a good day while I'm still relevant. To answer your question is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement, that's not a word in his vocabulary, I think. That's yeah. the answer to that question. Yeah. I'm involved in, in 18 committees at the moment. Uh, 18. 18, yeah. Well, I, I suppose, first of all, I have to say, uh, Breed is very tolerant. No, I do actually balance them well because some meetings I hold uh, in my lunch break, so it doesn't either impact on the army nor on, the, uh, on my personal life. In fairness, I think I don't have meetings on a Friday night though. Are you good at Are you good at just sitting down and chilling out? Well, I, I can do. I find it very easy to, to switch off. Actually, uh, but here to tell you that I can, I can literally. Well, I, I can go. I can sleep anywhere for a start off. I can grab a nap anywhere on the move or, or, or anything. But she's Brita's always slagging me about. But uh, but no, I do. Uh, listen, put on the earphones, listen to music, or watch a bit of telly, and I can chill out and then switch back in. Then whenever I have to. I came here as a 17-year-old. I've never left it, bar it was to go overseas or do a course. Um, I, I suppose essentially now as Sergeant Major, the regiment is my life's work. I would have to say I would back it, back it against probably anyone. Uh, it, it is my life's work. I, I do have a great belief in it and a great belief in the people that are here and the people that have gone through it. Uh, it's not perfect, it's perfect for me. Private Jane Conway from Kildare Town. Corporal Ollie McNamee from Mullingar. My name's Sergeant Gary Frill. I'm from Castlefan, County Donegal. Captain Jean Fitzgerald. I'm from Costume Barracks in Atlone. I'm based in the Transport Corps. My name is uh, Corporal McCormack. Um, I'm from Atlone. I'm serving with the military police out here. Corporal Fergan McLaughlin with the 4th FVR Mullingar. And, uh, my hometown is Ballymatton in County Longford. Private Michael Kelly uh, from uh, the Carra County Clare. My name is Sergeant Jared uh, Campbell. I'm from uh, Redcastle in Donegal. Ladies and gentlemen, now welcome to Beirut. It is uh, half past four time. The outside temperature is 20 degrees. 0-3-7, back in your location now. Lovely to see you. South Lebanon, the village of Tibnine, the new Camp Shamrock. This is my first time in Lebanon as a sergeant major, but it's very satisfying because with the camp we took over, uh, wouldn't have been in great nick, uh, as we'd say. Now, some people may see that as a problem, but for me and the lads, we would see that as a challenge, and it gives you the scope to put your own stamp on it. So if you were to come here uh, a month ago, what you see here now, we bear no resemblance to what we had. Everybody settled in, I think we're getting a good grip on the country and we know now what's going on, we know what's expected. So building the camp, getting stuff ready, establishing ourselves out here, I think it's, it's good. Time has flew by, so it's grand. So what was it like a month ago? Oh, it was very basic. We had a few, uh, we had a few buildings with, with walls and, and a roof. Uh, but it wasn't clean, it wasn't up to regimental standard. I'm, 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 we're, only, we're not even started yet, we're only getting into it. But every day our work parties are beaving away. Securing the camp obviously was the first priority. Uh, comfort came second and then uh, regimental standards come toward to just spruce it up, paint the walls, make them presentable for, for people and visitors. What's the first thing that would hit somebody coming to this part of South Lebanon? Yeah, well, for obviously the heat. Uh, I, I thought after, you know, we had a few 56 and 57 degrees in Chad, and I thought I'd never again have heat issues again. But today it's 38 degrees, and it's sweltering, and and we're just standing around. When we get into, when we're working in the work parties or building sandbag positions, uh, the sweat literally, despite the dry flow, uh, equipment just flows down your back. That being said, uh, the first morning I woke up here, I woke up to the sound of the local Mukhtar and, uh, from the mosque and he was doing his prayers. 
and there was a mosquito inside my net having devoured me for the night, so that which wasn't great. But straight away uh, I woke up and and then you, you get into it. But I have to say it's very satisfying too. It's hugely changed in my, since my first tips. This is typical land that the people work and live in, and but it's it's a lot different to the old days because it's a, a lot of it is built up and there's some fabulous houses around it, and inf- they actually have roads, which is a the iron bombs, the iron g- craters in them, so w- which is a major plus for them. As I stand in the middle of Camp Shamrock, looking out on the rocky, arid, rolling hills of South Lebanon, Lieutenant Liam MacDonald describes the area to me. We are looking southbound here to our front, we can see a ridge line. To, over to the right of the ridge line, you can see another UN post. This is a 6 41, formerly known as Hill 880, which is occupied by the Irish forces prior to our withdrawal in 2001. The village down to its left is the village of um, Aitazut. And if you come maybe a quarter right to that there on the ridge line below the UN post, to the village of Hadatta. The ridge line to our front shields uh, Israel itself, which is another about four kilometres behind that there. And you have the, the main urban municipality within the area, Bin Shabal, is approximately four kilometres or three kilometres after that there. All these areas are extremely sensitive for the for United Nations within the area. I'm carrying a pistol here under my short, which is nice and discreet. It's a balancing act. Uh, for instance, this morning we would have been out with the locals, uh, buying supplies and breaking down the barriers. It's their country, they're the hosts, we're the visitors, although we're here to protect them. Tonight when we go out, we'll be in battle vest and rifle because we also have to show a, a strong deterrent with the blue flag to say that, listen, we can ante up if we have to. So it's a fine balancing act. Travelling out of the camp, away from Tibnim, down to the boundary with Israel, I meet Tom. He is, quite literally, at the coalface. Well, what you see in front of you here, OK, is the Israeli, is the blue line, and to the right of it is the Israeli technical fence, and there... The Irish patrol an 11.3-kilometre stretch of the 118-kilometre blue line, the agreed boundary between Israel and Lebanon and one of the most militarised zones in the Middle East. So Tom, you're out here now um, and you're a platoon commander of 6-50 to people back at home that will be that will be that will mean nothing. So it's maybe yeah. paint a picture of what what you've landed into. Yeah, I suppose what we're in here is a small uh, platoon sized post which is twenty-eight uh, Irish soldiers here in this camp. A very small camp. It's essentially like a, a tiny little barracks here. And it's an observation post onto the, the blue line area. We can see the exact line between Israel and Lebanon. And it's marked out there by, there's a series of blue markers. Which you can see a distinct uh, difference between the two sides. Uh, Lebanon is much more, uh, I suppose, rugged, barren maybe uh, landscape, you know, but the far side then we're looking at green fields, uh, much kind of a more organized uh, system of, uh, as you say, irrigation and that. I suppose it's a sign of maybe the, the difference in, in wealth on, on both sides. On our right, we're looking out over some tents and the Belgian... Belgian demining, UN-Belgian demining team there so on the our Belgians right. Draw, and the Cambodians draw, drew the short straw <laughs> and they go into the minefields. It's a tough job now, there's no doubt, of it, uh, doubt about it. Um, I suppose they have the expertise to do it. Um, yeah, they, they pitched their tents just outside our camp and you can see there they have different areas marked into the, the blue line. I, I, I was speaking with their platoon commander maybe a few days ago. He called into the camp here to introduce himself. And I was just explaining that you know it can be very slow progress for them, maybe two or three metres per day uh, towards the technical fence or towards the blue line, clearing minefields, anti-personnel and anti-tank mines, very dangerous. Every so often we'd get word from them that there's going to be a controlled explosion at, you know, whatever time and just to stand by, we'll get about half an hour's notice of it. It's another step towards the blue line where they'll eventually put out more blue line markers so that the, the boundary becomes more distinct. So as we look out in it, that is a minefield? That is a minefield, yeah, and we've been told that off the main hard surface here it's not safe uh, to travel across country. It's you know, that main area to our immediate front is heavily mined, you know. I watch the sunrise shine through We do gather tonight very much as a family. We come here to this spot where we remember men who have died... Up one of the Warren of Hills in Tibnine village, there's a monument to the Irish soldiers who've lost their lives in Lebanon. Occasionally, the army chaplain will say a small mass here. 
I may Almighty God have mercy upon each one of us. May He forgive us our sins and bring us to life everlasting. I feel your shadows near. I am very proud to have the Irish here, more than 400 soldiers from your country. Unifil Force Commander Major General Alberto Asarta Cuevas. You have also suffered a lot of soldiers killed in uh, this part of the war. 47 soldiers lost their lives here. The local people here are very conscious of the sacrifice which Irish, the Irish Defence Forces have made uh, in South Lebanon. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Bulger, the commanding officer of the 104th Battalion. There is a monument in place in Tibnin. This is looked after by the local population. When we came here, we found the monument in the same condition that we had left it in 2000, uh, 2002. The revolutions in Egypt and Tunisia and the ongoing developments in Libya, Syria and across the Arab world right now informs the context within which the Irish are serving. Now with the uh, regional situation, with the Arab revolution, with the death of uh, Bin Laden, with the uh, problems in Syria, the cessation of hostilities here, because it's just a cessation of hostilities. It's not that the, the, both countries didn't sign uh, any uh, peace agreement or ceasefire, permanent ceasefire. So, so there are a lot of things that can change the situation at any time. So. Robert Fisk again. It's a post-Arab awakening. It's affected everyone here. They see the Syrians standing up to tanks in Syria and getting shot down and still going out in the streets. And people say, why can't we do the same? They're not worried about sh people shooting at them anymore. It's finished. If there was a reason or an excuse for Hezbollah or the Israelis to want a war, that stability will disappear in one hour. It was fairly stable in 2006, in the days before Hezbollah captured those Israeli soldiers, which set off the 2006 war, which Hezbollah claimed was a divine victory. It didn't feel much of a divine victory to me because I was there. But I don't think the Israelis won. They lost. Um, and you've got the Israelis who want to prove they can win, which they can't against Hezbollah, they're not up to it. And you've got the Hezbollah who are waiting, waiting, waiting for the opportunity to prove that they are, again, a resistance movement. And in between these two sides, you've got um, so many nations in UNIFIL, including NATO nations, with NATO generals in command, to which I can only say, ouch, 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 if anything goes wrong. Back in Tibnin, and as always, there is a more local economic imperative. Uh, they give job. This is the first thing. It's one of the most important. Mayor of Tibnin, Nabil Fawaz. The employment, the first employment person. That's what I tell. It's uh, the United Nations. Second thing, they are here. They are working all all the commerce. Uh, you have trading, uh, eating, uh, everything. You have five. Around 500 persons who are living here. It's an economical situation. Everything, watch, perfume. And now we have a big, big watch of that. All big make and good price and good treatment. Meet Mansour Mansour. His store is across from the original Camp Shamrock and he's grown up with Irish battalions down through the years. If they start, uh, start in uh, the 43rd Battalion in Lebanon, when the Irish come to Lebanon, it's coming a neighbor to my house in Hadatha. I mean, it starts in 78 until now. Uh, we started to build shop. Before, we didn't speak any English. We started learning it from the, uh, the Irish. You know, when you learn, the, especially the English or the Irish language, how they start. We growing up with a business. Mansour has also been bombed in his own home, losing an arm. And as a result, his Irish connection runs deeper than usual. In the Christmas night, in 80, half past one early morning, I went, woke up with a big sound. I think with somewhere else in the world, we found myself is in a big trouble. No hands, no bone is missing here, and stomach is bits and pieces. The Irish was in Hadassa school. It's crossed, crossed my house about 20, 25 meters. It's come down quickly, bring me up to the... Uh, school will then uh, help me we can to uh, to print the ambulance from Tibnin will then they stay with me and uh, take uh, care about me for uh, they plant a bomb beside the door and they make the, the explosive more more dangerous by the way we get um, most of the blood is uh, the Irish blood most of them engineer but that's very good after we wake up about two three days there's some uh, 
the Irish, uh, they visit me in the hospital. I said, how do you feel? I feel too good, but I'm still drunk from the, uh, the blood you give me. The Irish have settled in now. Inevitably, thoughts turn to home from time to time. Michelle is just going to close their, our mass now with a beautiful little song. They say the skies of Lebanon are burning. I, I Skyped for the first time last Sunday, under duress, I might add, because I wasn't into it at all, but uh, it was very funny. My, my grandchild and all was there, my son was there, David, my daughter, Rebecca, and of course, Breda. And uh, we had great fun for it. And you get, you get 15 minutes. But you, you have to cut off for 15 minutes because everyone has to get on. And it's excellent. Definitely have to bring the kids shopping, bring the wife shopping, treat her. But it, it, people, it, I know it's, it's lovely and sunny here, man, but people would be amazed how much you'd miss something like a breeze or a drizzle of rain. I just can't wait to get off the plane and be cold. Just cannot wait. For Sergeant Major Nolo Callahan, marking improvements in camp marks time passing before an expected visit by President McAleese before she leaves office. The reality is that uh, it's, another fo- it's another marker for us and all these things add to it. And, and they, they kind of mark off another point on the calendar, another movement towards the medal parade and towards the President's visit and, of course, uh, then our chalk home. For the now Captain Tom Mulderig, this trip also meant a promotion. It came yeah, about two weeks into our trip here and it was nice to get the battalion commander brought three of us in were promoted from lieutenant to captain uh, all the same cadet class and yeah it was nice nice bit of news two weeks into the trip you know to hear. You know. Battlefield promotion. Yeah <laughs> promotion in the field yes. <laughs> I mean I miss it it's part of military service that I miss the most um, I I you know, and, and people have asked me since I've been to Yugoslavia. I went through a lot out there in Yugoslavia when I was working with the Monitor Mission. But I remember being asked much, if you were to pick what was the best assignment you ever got in your 42 years of military service, without a doubt, it would be the privilege of commanding an Irish battalion in Lebanon. That, to me, was immeasurable. Freedom. The 104th Battalion will serve till November. The 105th have already formed up.